You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. There are a number of very important questions each one of us need to answer. And this morning I want us to consider for ourselves this little simple question, who am I? Why don't we say that together? Let's ask that question. Who am I? So I have um, a message this morning on discovering your identity. And there are very few things less important than having an accurate understanding of who you are, who, who I am. Um, how do you discover who you are? Ask some rhetorical questions. Are you what you do? Are you your assignment? Husband, wife, son, daughter, boss, business associate, barista, hairstylist, blue-collar worker, musician, artist. Are you your assignment? Heaven forbid, but the truth is any one of those situations or relationships can change and will change at some point in your life. I'm not saying if you're a husband or a wife, you won't always be, but I'm saying one or the other passed away, and suddenly you ask that question, who am I? You've lost that job. Well, is that who you are? And see, the idea is you're going to have an identity crisis until you know who you are. And when you know who you are, it would be impossible to have an identity crisis no matter what you go through. So I want us to look at uh, the life of one of the great apostles of the church. But I have some more questions. Are you who people say you are? Are you who culture says you are? Are you identified by other people's opinions? Are you limited by other people's opinions? I think those are very, all those are very important questions that go into this idea of really discovering um, each one of our own true, true identities. And so in the context of that identity question, in the Gospel of John, which is what we're studying. This is going to be my sort of launch verse is John 1, 40 through 42. Well, the Bible introduces us to a man named Simon Barjona. He's a fisherman on the day that he meets Jesus of Nazareth. So let's read this together. I believe it should be on the screen there behind me. Is it up there? I need a rearview mirror, I guess, but let's read this together. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas 
which is translated a stone. And that word Cephas, every other time almost in the New Testament is the word Peter, and it shows up as Peter. So we have this introduction, this fisherman named Simon, son of Jonah, is introduced to Jesus, and if you look at it, Jesus either knew who Peter was in the natural or who Simon was in the natural because they, uh, actually I believe they're related, Um, but Jesus says to him, you are Simon, son of Jonah, you shall be called Peter. Well, what was going on there? Here's what I believe was going on. Jesus was saying to this man, I know who you are, but you don't. I know who you are, Simon Barjona, but you don't. And what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see a process where Jesus begins to help this man named Simon Barjona, the fisherman, discover who he is because he thought he was a fisherman. His father was a fisherman. He lived in Bethsaida on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. He was a Galilean. That's where fishermen lived. He grew up on the Sea of Galilee. His grandfather was most likely a fisherman. His brother Andrew was a fisherman. His cousins James and John were fishermen. They were all in business together. Here's what Peter must have thought. I'm a fisherman. And he was. But he wasn't the kind of fisherman Jesus knew him to be. And Peter did not really know who he was. So this is how we introduce this. Jesus knew that Simon Barjona did not know who he was. And that until he did, he would never fulfill his destiny. Now, here's something I think is very significant about um, how many times Peter's name is used in the New Testament, or particularly in the Gospels. In the Gospels alone, the name Peter shows up 129 times. But the interesting thing, actually one day the Lord, I think, gave me this idea and then began to show me why he did it. I had this idea to go into the concordance and see how many times the name Peter shows up in red letters. What would it indicate if it showed up in red letters? That Jesus had used his name. And I thought, well, that's an odd idea to have. But anyway, I did it. I thought I'd find 30, 40, 50. I didn't know. I didn't find but three. Every other time, and we'll see here in a minute, but five times if you count the Gospels in the book of Acts, every other time, but essentially five times, whenever Jesus related to Simon Barjona, he he related to him as Simon. And he only related to him and called him and used the name Peter essentially five times. And the Lord began to show me every time Jesus used that name, He was revealing to this man who thought he was a fisherman more and more and more about his own identity. He was defining this man in a way he never imagined he could be defined. 
And when you look out through, through all of history, it's absolutely amazing that technically an uneducated fisherman from a remote part of a little tiny region of the world became one of the most prolific individuals in human history. What happened? He found out who he was. He discovered his true identity, not what people told him, not what society told him, not what culture told him, not what his occupation told him, but he found out who he was because God told him. And it was a very, very perilous journey, to say the least. Now, here's, here's the reality of it. Do we absolutely know, down to the nth degree, our identity in a way that we can't be shaken? No, I don't think so. I think there are always gaps. I think there are always, there's always more to learn. Uh, there's always mo- more to know about the Lord. But nevertheless, we're all on that journey. But some of us may not have really known we were on that journey. But this is what God's doing for every single person he created. He's trying to reveal to them who he is so that they can see who they are. Now, here's an idea we need to understand. Heaven reserves the right to name you. And when I say name you, what I mean is heaven reserves the right to tell you who you are. No one else does. Now, I know your mom, your dad, they have a big part to play. But how many parents have raised rocket scientists and they turn out to be songwriters? My mother wanted me to be a, a doctor or a dentist and, or a lawyer. And I, and I could have been some of those, but I'd have been bad at it. And I told my mother about the dentist. God bless dentists. I have a great dentist. But I said, Mom, I'm not going to be looking in people's mouths the rest of my life. Trust me. And I don't like to read boring stuff enough to be a lawyer. And I'm not smart enough to be a doctor. And I'm not going to go to school for 25 years. So she was disappointed. But she's in heaven now, and she understands. So. <laughs> but heaven reserves the right to name you. Now, you have to understand this too. Your identity will be contested. Life is going to test you. You are going to have to, in some ways, fight for who God says you are. It will not necessarily come easily. Now, we find a great example of this in the book of Luke. Uh, Zechariah was an elderly priest. He and his wife Elizabeth had never had children. It was uh, the most painful, most likely the most painful aspect of their lives. And so towards the end of Zechariah's life, he is probably the only time he had uh, the specific opportunity to minister at the altar of incense. An angel appears to him and scares him. How many of you be scared if an angel appeared? All of you who didn't say yes are wrong. They can be scary. So here's what happened. 
This is Luke chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I don't have this on the overhead, but you can find it on one of your devices or Bible. But let me read this to you. The angel shows up. Zechariah was startled and overwhelmed with fear. But the angel reassured him, saying, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God is showing grace to you. For I have, to, I have come to tell you that your prayer for a child has been answered. And there's an interesting footnote in the Passion Translation when he said that prayer, it could mean that prayer that you no longer pray has been answered. It means you gave up on it. Here's a great idea. How many of you like great ideas, little secret sneaky truths that make you happy? Some of our prayers have longer shelf life than our faith. (laughs) Come on. That doesn't make you happy. Might need to be a Hindu or a Buddhist. No, I'm messing with you. No, that doesn't make any sense. I'm sorry. So God answers this prayer. He was probably, oh, man, no longer praying. He says, your prayer for a child has been answered. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to name him John. Heaven names the child. His birth will bring you much joy and gladness. Many will rejoice because of him. He will be one of the great ones in the sight of God. He will drink no wine or strong drink, but he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even while still in his mother's womb. And he will persuade many in Israel to convert and to turn back to the Lord their God. He will go before the Lord as a forerunner with the same power and anointing as Elijah the prophet. He will be instrumental in turning the hearts of the fathers in tenderness back to their children and the hearts of the disobedient back to the wisdom of their righteous fathers. And he will prepare a united people who are ready for the Lord's appearing. So this angel appears. He tells Zechariah, "You, I know you and Elizabeth have been barren all these days. I know you don't pray this anymore, but that prayer was potent when you did pray it. It didn't lose its potency because I'm here to tell you God is going to answer that prayer. Now, Zechariah was ministering at the altar of incense, which is actually the place that represents prayer. And this angel had trouble convincing the priest who was ministering at the altar of incense, which was the place of prayer, that God was going to answer his prayer. And so it seemed like the angel got a little frustrated with him. I don't know the angel's heart, but I do know this. He said, okay, since you didn't believe me, you're not going to be able to speak until the child's born. How many of you remember that part? Very interesting. Uh, It could have been that he didn't want his unbelief to manifest through his negative expression that he could mess up the promise. I don't know. That's debatable, but it's the angel did it anyway. Put the kibosh on his voice box, and that was that. But he says, you're going to have a child. You're going to name him. Here's what he's going to do. And so we see, we see heaven's destiny for this child who is yet to be born. So then we find out when the child is born, there was conflict over his name. Um, When he was eight days old, the family gathered for the circumcision ceremony. It says everyone was convinced that the parents would name the baby Zechariah after his father. But Elizabeth spoke up and said, no, he has to be named John. What? They exclaimed. No one in your family line has that name. 
So they gestured to the baby's father to ask what to name the child. After motioning for a writing tablet, in amazement of all, he wrote, His name is John. The minute Zechariah agreed with heaven, God gave back his voice. That's a powerful idea. Instantly, Zechariah could speak again. I grew up um, Presbyterian, and it was a great and is still a great tradition. I mean, a long line. My forefathers were Presbyterian pre-Revolutionary War when they moved to the U.S. Um, they came as dissenters. They came as they came for the sole purpose of practicing their religion without hindrance. They settled in western uh, Western South Carolina, and they lived there. Well, there's, all of them are gone now, so they're not still living there. But nevertheless, my family tradition was Reformed Presbyterian. My great-grandfather and my grandfather were publishers for the denomination. The Associate Reformed Press was the name of their publishing company. I went to that church college. My mom went to that church college. They were dyed in the wool, and they thought I would be too. But I wasn't. I was something not exactly like a Presbyterian person. And um, I had a different destiny. And so I experienced conflict with my parents and a number of my peers because they didn't know who I was. And honestly, I didn't either. I just knew I wasn't that. And see, that's what happens. We discover what we're not, but that is not the same thing as discovering what we are. And so we have to be careful not to live in reaction against things. That will never get you where you're going. That may get you here, but it won't get you there. It may get you out of one thing, but it won't get you in another thing. You need to find out. But God retains the right and has the ability to define you and to reveal to you your identity, but you're going to have conflict. You could have family conflict. Um, I remember when I was selling pots and pans years ago and I was so hungry for God and I'd seen miracles, I'd seen people healed, I'd seen all these things go on and I was absolutely enamored with the supernatural life. Um, and a, a friend of mine said, well, you're going to have a terrible family because you're too interested in the supernatural. Well, I thought, that's, that's ridiculous and I have a great family. I mean, you know, we got some skeletons <laughs> in the closet, but uh, we pull them out and dust them every once in a while. <laughs> but I had this yearning for something beyond what I was being given as I grew up. And I didn't want to get talked out of it. How many of you are listening to me? I didn't, I didn't want to conform. I was growing up in the 1960s, and they say if... You remember the 60s, you didn't participate. But it was an extreme period. It's much, really, there, there are a lot of similarities between that period and this period. There are a lot of social upheaval, a lot of conflict in the government. The Vietnam War was going on, riots on campus, all that sort of thing. But in the midst of that, something happened called the Jesus Movement, and God did one of the most remarkable 
there was one of the most remarkable outpourings in American history that happened in the late 60s and early 70s that absolutely began to transform every branch of the church, whether they liked it or not. So I want to look the second time at um, when Jesus used Peter's name. So let's look at Matthew 16, 13 through 19. You don't have to read this out loud, but I'm going to read it. Is it up there? Do you see it? Verse 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So Peter nails his colors to the mast. He doesn't hem and haul around. He says, here's who you are. Here's who I know you to be. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. He's basically saying, you're the one we heard about for centuries. And finally, you're here. You're not John the Baptist. You're not another Elijah. You're something way more than that. You are the Messiah. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you. What name did you use? Doesn't use Peter there. It's interesting. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But then listen to this next verse. Let me take a break. And I, what's that next word? Also. also. Say also. 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 That's an important word to see. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you keys to the kingdom of heaven. You can bind on earth. It will be bound in heaven. You can loose on earth. It will be loosed in heaven. What happened there? Here's what happened. When Peter identified accurately who Jesus was, Jesus could then and only then identify for Simon Barjona who he really was. It's like Peter said, you're the Messiah. And, you, and Jesus says, well, I also tell you that you are Peter. And here's the idea. Until you know Jesus until you know who he is, until you know who he is accurately, you will never know who you are. And that's what Simon Barjona was going through. And I also say to you, you told me who I am, now I can tell you who you are. And then there's all the stuff about the gates of hell, and I could get into all that, but I just really don't have that much time. But it's very interesting. I think we can at least say this. There's nothing that can keep you from what you're supposed to be doing. No gate of hell. No influence. Gates are places of influence. Gates come in. To, to me, the gates of hell are other people influenced by the devil. You'd have to understand that. 
but that's who they are. The gates of hell are places in the world hell has access points. And hell has access points through people, although we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So what he was saying is, when you know who you are, no one and nobody can keep you from what you're supposed to do. Nobody. And when you know who you are, heaven will be open to you with an access you could hardly imagine. That's what was going on. Now, the point. You don't know who you are till you know who Jesus is. When you know who Jesus is, And who you are truly, the gates of hell will have no influence or control over you. Heaven becomes accessible. Many people know who Jesus is. How many people have been letting him reveal? How many have heard from him? How many of you have gone through this process to find out who he says you are? It's so important. Now, that was the second time. So the first time, Jesus used Peter's name. He was saying, I know who you are, but you don't. That's what happens when we meet the Lord. He's saying to you, I know who you are, but you don't. The second time, he was saying, when you know who you are, you'll be unstoppable. Now, here's the third time. Luke twenty two thirty one through 34. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that what? Your faith should not fail. So that's a great idea. There's a difference in you failing and whether or not your faith fails. So you can fail but you're not ultimately a failure as long as your faith stays intact and you get back up. And trust me, everybody in here is going to mess up sometime, somewhere, somehow. But Jesus says to him, you're going to, Satan's give, ask permission to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But here's the problem. Peter could not hear what Jesus said. And I want you to understand this. Peter goes through a terrible, probably the worst experience of his life. And he went through that worst experience because he could not hear what Jesus was telling him. There was a place of pride in Peter's heart There's so many things we go through we don't have to go through if we just listen. And then we say, the Lord did this to me. Well, no, he didn't do it to you. He's trying to keep you from it. You did it to yourself. Okay, that's really going over good, Lord. But uh, I prayed for you. When you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, you got that wrong. You can never say that to the Lord. Did you know that? <laughs> Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. So what does Jesus say to you? I tell you who? Peter. The rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. And we know the rest of the story. Peter did exactly what Jesus said he was going to do. Why would Jesus use the name Peter in the context of Peter's greatest failure? 
I believe it was because Jesus was saying, you're getting ready to mess up, big bud. But don't forget, I know who you are. Don't forget my special name I have for you. He was reinforcing his love for him, knowing what he was going to go through. In the midst of your biggest failure, here's what Jesus has to say to you. I know who you are. That's not who you are. Now, you had to go through that to find out who you are, but I know who you are. My heart never changed. So in the impending worst day of Peter's life, Jesus calls him Peter to remind him to not forget who I said you are. And here's what happens. Simon is sifted, and after he's sifted, only Peter's left, meaning that sifting helped take away the imposter that was Peter. Do you understand what I'm saying? The illusion that, that was Peter. And the reality of the person emerged through that process. Okay, then there's the fourth time, and this is after the resurrection. And actually here, it's not Jesus saying this, but it's, um, it's an angel who said it on Jesus' behalf. So this is Mark 16, 6 through 8, verse 6. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. How many of you are happy for an empty tomb? Come on. Come on. I think about Jesus resurrected from the grave. Jerusalem is uh, just decades from total destruction. Do you realize that? When Jesus was resurrected, Jerusalem might have been 30 years from total destruction. So Jesus comes out of the grave, and what does he say? He says, hey, rejoice. He says, in the world you'll have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Jesus was the most positive man. Thank you, Jesus. Resurrection. And that resurrection life lives in us if we can only get in tap, uh, get a tap into it. Verse 7, but go tell his disciples and let's read verse 7 together. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee there you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. <laughs> they said nothing to anyone. So I don't know if they told old Peter or not, but anyway, he shows up in Galilee. But here's the idea. This phrase, go tell his disciples and Peter, only shows up in the gospel of Mark. Mark was Peter's spiritual son, and I'm sure Peter was thinking, okay, everybody's going to know I failed. I want everybody also to know that Jesus gave me a personal invitation back into my destiny, lest anyone not appreciate that. Go tell his disciples who? And Peter. Here's the point. Jesus will not allow how others feel about you to affect how he feels about you. It doesn't matter what they say. God never looks for credit references for you about what he knows you to be, what he wants you to do. He doesn't ask anybody what they think, and should he ever ask them, it's only to tell them to be quiet. It's none of their business, like in John 21. 
That was really good. <laughs> At the great white throne judgment, there are going to be no witness, no credit, no, just you and God. And here's the idea. No failure has to be final. When Peter failed the Lord, he cursed. He used cuss words. He denied him with oaths and curses. That's the worst thing an apostle can do is deny Jesus, not just deny him, cussing. But no failure has to be final. Will you say that to me? No failure has to be final. And it cannot define you if you have faith. Now, here's the old adage, God loves us so much that he takes us as we are. How many of you heard that? But he loves us too much to leave us as we are. See, that's part two of the wonderful message. We, we want God to take us as we are, and then, well, God loves me as I am. Yeah, comma. <laughs> wants, wants you to, uh, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Yeah, there is a such thing as holiness with which no man shall see the Lord, the Bible says. This um, sin as much as you want. It's not, a, it's not a good process. Live any way you want. You can live any way you want. You can. But it's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt people around you. It's going to affect your children. You really can't do anything you want. Life is not about doing what you want to do. It's not. Here's what life is. Trouble. Trouble. You're going to have trouble. If you don't get that, you will never. I was talking to Andy this morning. If you don't understand that life is one problem after another, you will never have the capacity to be truly happy because you expect stuff. Your sense of reality is not available. So you got to deal with getting better. I heard this guy, Jordan Peterson, say, if you do some of the right things, life will get better, but do not fool yourself. It can get infinitely worse if you do not take responsibility for your life. That's a great idea, and it's so true. Go tell my disciples and Peter. That's such a great message. No failure has to be final. No failure can define you. If you have faith, if you know who you are. Arthur Burke used to say, if God didn't forgive, heaven would be empty. Of us, anyway. Here's the fifth time. Acts chapter 10, verse 9. Now, to set up Acts chapter 10, this is a period of time after Pentecost. The Holy Ghost has been poured out. And Peter is, um, he's in uh, Simon the Tanner's house. 
and he's praying up on a roof and he's getting hungry. Well, just prior to that, an angel had appeared to a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And the Roman centurion, the angel told him, you need to send a man. uh, What was the name of the town? Who can remember that? Where Simon the Tanner lived. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Go down there. Ask for a man named Simon Peter. Invite him back to your house. He's going to tell you words you can't afford not to listen to. And so Cornelius's entourage is coming to look for Peter. Meanwhile, Peter is up on the top of this roof, and he's praying. Joppa, that's where he lived. Thank you, Jesus. There it was. The next day around noon, as Cornelius's men were approaching Joppa, Peter went up to the roof of the house to pray. He was hungry and wanted to eat, but while lunch was being prepared, he fell into a trance and entered into another realm. As the heavenly realm opened up, he saw something resembling a large linen tablecloth that descended from above, being let down to the earth by its four corners. As it floated down, he saw that it held many kinds of four-footed animals, reptiles, and wild birds. A voice said to him, Peter, this is the fifth time, the Lord says, Peter, go and prepare them to be eaten. Peter replied, there's no way I could do that, Lord, for I have never eaten anything forbidden or impure according to our Jewish laws. The voice spoke again. Nothing is unclean if God declares it to be clean. The vision was repeated three times. Then suddenly the linen sheet was snatched back up to heaven. So here's what was going on. The Jewish tradition had animals They were not allowed to eat. They were considered unclean. You'd be breaking one of the laws, one of the Jewish laws. And so Peter's praying, and this sheet comes down, and he's hungry. And on the the sheet, it was like a menu of all the things he couldn't eat. That was really interesting observation. It's like a, and the Lord says, kill these animals and eat them. And Peter says, no, it's not kosher. That's not what we do. And so the Lord tells him two more times. And each time he says, nothing is unclean if God declares it to be clean. And God was declaring that then, I guess, to be, to be clean. So God used this vision to show Peter that Gentiles were eligible to enter the kingdom of God the same way he had. Because immediately after that vision, Cornelius' soldiers show up. They ask for Peter. And the Lord says to Peter, Peter... You need to go with them, asking, doubting nothing, because it was unlawful for a Jew to live and stay in a Gentile's house. The Lord was telling Peter to do everything he had known his whole life he should not do based on what he knew about the Lord, knew about the Jewish tradition. So Peter goes down there. Cornelius says, what is your message Peter preaches the gospel, and in the middle of the gospel, all of the Romans begin to speak in tongues, just like Simon Peter had done in the upper room, and he realizes God wants to save Gentiles. They're not unclean, which makes all of us in the room here. We do have several natural Jews in the room, but thank God the rest of us 
are not unclean. Isn't that good news? And that's the way, that's the way God spoke to Peter to open the door to the rest of the world to the gospel. Now, what is the point? Why, why did God use Peter's name again there? Why did Jesus say Peter, not Simon Barjona? It's because of this. Jesus was saying, Peter, for you to fulfill your destiny, you're going to have to change the way you think about some pretty significant things. How many people do you know are stuck in a rut, never get where they're going, won't change, won't listen, can't make the shift? I can remember that phrase. I was talking to John Mark, and we were talking about making progress and growing into things, and he came up with this phrase, which is, what got you here won't get you there. And see, one of the real difficulties with serving the Lord, now I'm not talking about embracing brand new doctrines or I'm not talking about that, but for us to relate to people the way we need to relate to them, you, you know, I'm, I'm terribly bothered by all the back and forth in the government and the, the negativity. And the Bible is very clear. It says, honor all men. That's the biblical standard. We cannot allow ourselves to be influenced by the culture. That is not who I am. I'm not railing at immigrants or Muslims or Hindus or people that disagree with me, and I'll tell you why. It's rude. It's dishonorable. It's, belief, it's beneath my place in life as a royal child of the king. We do not have to relate to people on that level. Why? Because it's not who we are. It's not who we are. Okay, how about some conclusions? God reserves the right to identify you. There's a difference in your identity and your assignment. A lot of people get this messed up. Men, when they meet one another... What's the first question they ask? What do you do? And then you tell them who you are, who you think you are, right up until you lose that job. And then you have an identity crisis. But there's a difference in who you are and what you do. When you know who you are, you're no longer susceptible to an identity crisis. It was intentional that the Apostle John referred to himself, I think, four different times in his own gospel, not as John, but as the disciple whom Jesus loved, because that was his identity, not the apostle of Jesus, not the miracle worker, not the revelator, not the gospel writer, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's who he was. All those other things were assignments that would start and stop. Let me give you a couple of quotes. How do you know who you are? Define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. Yeah. Brennan Manning said that, and he also said this. 
While the imposter draws his identity from past achievements and the adulation of others, the true self claims identity in its belovedness. Spiritual identity means we're not what we do, we're not what people say about us, and we're not what we have. We are the beloved daughters and sons of God. That's who we are. But all of us go through stuff. How many of you go through stuff trying to figure out who you are and you get your feelings hurt and you get confused? And Yeah, I go through some of that too. I had a dream recently that really, really spoke to me. I dreamed um, just last week. Donna and I were in the kitchen, and we're looking at this Cutco knife. I don't know. How many of you know Brandon Willett? Brandon Willett sold us a Cutco knife over 20 years ago, and it's still the sharpest knife in the drawer, as they say. It really is. It could cut through aluminum, I mean. So I'm looking at this knife, and I'm talking to Don in the kitchen, and then I used to sell restaurant equipment. I had another knife, and I was looking at it, and I was thinking, I really, I'm, I'm so happy to have this stuff. This, this is awesome. Look at this knife. Gosh, this is almost as old as, it's almost 20 years old. It's cuts. It's awesome. So she, um, she looked at me with a smile on her face and she said, there's only one thing I ever truly wanted in my life and I have it. And it's you. That's what she said. Only one thing I ever truly wanted in my life, she said, and it's you. It's me. And boy, did that feel good. And then the Lord said, that's a picture of me. There's only one thing I ever truly wanted in my life, and it's you. It's you. Amen. Amen. I was just thinking, I guess I think about this a lot, but the identity conversation is never a finished conversation. I don't know if you've realized that. Because um, the identity conversation is a (laughs) continual conversation because you are constantly changing. I don't know if you've realized that. I feel like as soon as I figure out who I am, I'm already questioning (laughs) my purpose and what I'm doing. You know, it's very easy to live in those moments, right? Um, I got some friends. We talk about that a lot. There's a song by one of my favorite artists called Glory Days. You ever know someone who's trapped in their glory days? You know, like uh, Rico. Remember, he's like, I can throw a football over that mountain. You You know what I'm saying? He got trapped in high school football because that's when he felt important. Meanwhile, the world and, and himself have changed. Napoleon Dynamite. I don't know, that movie's probably 12 years old now. But Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. He got trapped. We, I mean, it's funny, but like, we all know people like that. And, if, and, and we're, all like, we're all like Uncle Rico. For real. For real, is and, and, and this like I feel like a lot of my younger life, I feel like I'm going to figure out who I am, and that's who I'm going to always be. But it's not like that. We are constantly figuring out who we are in different phases of our lives because 
God is constantly dealing with us. And it's beautiful, right? It's beautiful. It'd be real simple and easy if it was just like a thing we just did and it was done, right? But it's not. It's, identity is a thing that's cultivated. It's a thing we cultivate with God. And um, I love that conversation. I love it. Lord Jesus, thank you. We love you. And we ask that you would continually speak to us. We ask that you would continually look into our lives and continually tell us who we are, who we've always been, and how that matters now. And uh, some of us need to let go of Uncle Rico's glory days. I know I do. I need to let go of who I thought I was, and I need you to show me who I am now or <laughs> how who I've always been in you matters now in this season of my life. And if some of us are ready, Lord, we let go of some of those things. We give them to you. We give them to you. I love the story about Peter. Rise and eat. Kill and eat. And how brave was Peter to do that? How difficult was it to do that? To let in a bunch of people who were not allowed not only were they not allowed, they were the same people <laughs> who were murdering his friends. Oh, man, Lord, how have we been wrong? What do we need to kill? What do we need to <laughs> rise and kill in our own lives, Lord? Where have we set standards that were not your standards? Where have we created fences and things that were not yours in our own lives, Lord? What is the new menu for us? Where are you challenging us? Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.